and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, September 24th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Happy to be here. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, Julie. Later in this episode, I will talk to my KHN colleague, Sarah Jane Tribble. Sarah's new podcast called Where It Hurts, about what happens in a rural community after its local hospital closes, drops next week. But first, this week's news. So we really have to start with the sad news of the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg, in her work as an attorney, a federal judge, and a Supreme Court justice, literally changed the world for women, helping establish the legal rights we all rely on today. She was a passionate fighter for health care and for women's ability to control their own bodies and fertility. Ginsburg's death, as I wrote over the weekend, throws an already chaotic general election campaign in a pandemic into even more turmoil. As of this moment, it appears that Republicans in the Senate have enough votes to seat a nominee, President Trump says he'll announce this weekend, possibly even seating that nominee before the election. Obviously, that could immediately impact the Affordable Care Act case we've been talking about here since 2018, now known as Texas v. California. That case is being heard at the Supreme Court November 10th, exactly a week after Election Day. What's at stake here and how does Ginsburg's death impact that case. It means that potentially the Affordable Care Act is, you know, one step closer to either in part or in whole uh, potentially being struck down. Um, Now, we should add that a lot of uh, legal experts, including even conservative legal experts, believe that the case is weak. However, there's a lot at stake potentially here. You know, the Affordable Care Act uh, really established different policies all across the healthcare system. It you know, required insurers to cover people with pre-existing conditions. It offered robust health insurance for people who don't get insurance through work. It allowed low-income people to enroll in Medicaid. Um, and so there are just a lot of different portions of the healthcare system that could really be affected if the law were to be struck down. Um, and so that's what what's at stake and what we're looking at. I feel like the the Democratic attorneys general who sort of rushed this case to the Supreme Court, it was supposed to go back to the lower court, um, felt pretty confident that Chief Justice Roberts, who voted to uphold the law twice before, would likely vote to uphold it again, since, as Kim said, this is a somewhat weaker case, and there would be four liberals, and that would sort of take care of that. But now Chief Justice Roberts' vote might not matter. Um, you could, If there isn't anybody uh, who uh, who's appointed uh, to, to fill the seat before November 10th, then it could end up in a 4-4 to tie. Uh, or if there's another conservative, it could end up 5-4 to with the Chief Justice on the losing side. Um, I mean, how big a deal would it be for the health care system if the Affordable Care Act were to be declared unconstitutional? It's not just these benefits that people sort of know and are popular. Yeah, I think the ACA touches every part of healthcare. When you have something that big that happens in the healthcare system, it's going to affect kind of the practices that 
everybody's using, even if they're not in the in the program in Obamacare specifically. I think kind of acutely, you've got you know more than 20 million people who get their insurance through the ACI in some way, either through Medicaid or the online exchanges, and we all get preventative services now for free because of Obamacare. Even the things that people kind of forget about, but you know, there are calorie counts on your menu labels in restaurant chains. There are the potential for lower cost complex biologic drugs because of Obamacare. So this, you know, it's much wider than just the 20 million people that do have insurance or coverage through the ACA in some way. But while they're extremely important, it's going to touch everything. Yeah. So anti-abortion activists have been waiting for this moment for nearly five decades now, the chance to have a clear anti-abortion majority on the court and perhaps one that would be finally willing to not just overturn Roe v. Wade, but perhaps even declare a right to life, which would not just leave the decision up to individual states, but could actually outlaw abortion entirely in the United States. I have dutifully written stories about how Roe is on the ballot in every presidential election since 1988, but it feels like this time it's possible the ship has already sailed, right? That Roe might not be on the ballot in November. It might be effectively gone. Am I overstating things here? No, not at all. In fact, uh, there are already two cases that the Supreme Court could consider in regards to abortion. One has to do with whether to block uh, doctors from using telemedicine to provide the abortion pill. Another one, which was actually set to conference next Tuesday, but I noticed was just pushed back, has to do with the Mississippi abortion ban that would have banned abortion after 15 weeks. So even if the Supreme Court doesn't overturn Roe, there are ways that they can really chip around at it. And there are ways that that has happened already at the state level. Um, Across the country, access to abortion is really uneven state by state. And so the Supreme Court, yes, could overturn Roe. They could also make it so that uh, States can put more regulations on abortion providers. They can have waiting periods for women, ban certain types of abortions from being performed. So there are a lot of other ways that the courts could chip away at abortion rights, even if they don't um, completely overturn the Roe decision, which is a possibility as well. And it's not just abortion. I think people have been missing this. It's also birth control. The court has already prioritized religious beliefs of employers over those of their workers in terms of contraceptive coverage. And there's cases heading toward the high court that would defund Planned Parenthood and let healthcare workers, not just doctors and nurses, but pharmacists and health aides, decline to provide services that violate their consciences. So not just abortion and birth control, but sterilization and sort of any anything else. Um, Um, How big a shift could another conservative vote on the court really be for things that we kind of take for granted now? I think it'd be it'd be pretty large. And especially, you know, when you have some of the conservative justices who, you know, appointed by Republicans, thinking someone like John Roberts or even Brett Kavanaugh appointed by President Trump, you it's one more vote that if you do lose one of them in any of these, you know, President Trump is talking about appointing a justice who Democrats fear is going to be a sure vote. You have senators like Josh Hawley of Missouri, who has said basically his standard of confirming a judge is whether they would vote to overturn Roe. So the assumption at this point is that whoever President Trump nominates, who it appears is likely to have the Senate votes to be seated from the bench, although I should say a lot could happen um, before that happens, as we all know, is considered to be 
a more sure vote on those things, giving you the space to lose a vote on someone like Justice Ro- Chief Justice Roberts, who maybe is considered a little bit less of a sure vote by a lot of conservatives. Yeah, Justice Roberts, I think I think from the day he upheld the Affordable Care Act in 2012 has engendered doubts among conservatives. Um, although another time we will we will talk about how Justice Roberts vote on the Louisiana abortion law this past term isn't as pro-abortion rights as one might think. Um, but let us move on because we have lots to cover. Um, the nation passed a profoundly sad milestone this week. The number of COVID-19 deaths topped 200,000, and it appears the U.S. still does not have a comprehensive plan to contain the virus. Six months in, what's each of your biggest takeaways about what we have and haven't done right to try and get a handle on the pandemic? Let's just sort of go around. Anna? For me, I think it's very obvious, like masks come to mind. There was a lot of controversy in the beginning, even among, you know, trusted health experts on whether you should be using one. Um, Once it was agreed upon that a mask should be used, um, that they were a good idea. I don't think that they've been capable of getting the message through on why they're important. I think that there are a lot of people who think that if they're wearing one, that's enough for them. Um, and if they don't care then they and they don't wear one, that it doesn't matter for anyone else. Um, and I think that that has been a huge failing in people that, that I talk to in my regular everyday life, still at this point in the pandemic, having to explain why it's important that everyone wear a mask is not just exhausting, but is sort of shocking to me that that message hasn't got out there. And um, I think that for me, that's been one of the biggest problems of getting this under control. And PSA, please wear it over your nose too. (laughs) Uh, Kim. The messaging definitely has been um, inconsistent, uh, to say the least. And, you know, I think it's been hard because from state to state, you're also seeing so much variation in um, how they're handling the pandemic and how they're messaging around it. I would say that one thing that we're doing better since the beginning you know, on a more positive note, and we should note that, you know, we're not through this yet. We're not out of the woods at all um, on this pandemic, but it does seem as though um, doctors are really learning how to treat patients with the coronavirus better. And so we're seeing um, lower numbers of deaths, which is a positive thing. And so it does seem like they're getting closer into understanding, okay, if you have the coronavirus and you have a severe case, how can we get you out on the other side to make sure that, you know, you don't succumb to the virus? The interesting thing about that for me, though, is that we don't know the long-term effects. Um, so thank goodness, like people are are living um, longer, but we are are living through it. But we we don't know um, what the effects, particularly on the heart, um, look like, or what whether they're going to last, since people are showing up with inflammation there. And it does seem like that's something that you know researchers are working on. I was watching a House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee hearing and. Representative Morgan Griffith, who had the virus, said he's participating in a study to try to figure out what types of long-term effects there are. But obviously, it could be, you know, quite some time before we do have an answer to that. And obviously, going back to the to the ACA case, pretty much everybody who's gotten coronavirus now has a pre-existing condition, whether or not they, you know, they're having still having symptoms because we know so little about what the long-term effects are. It would not be unreasonable for, you know, uh, insurance companies to be dubious about the continued good health of those people. Mel, what's your biggest takeaway? I think that, you know, as you said, we are we never really got our case number down to the point of some other foreign countries, Dr. Fauci has talked about this a lot, you know, it never quite got low enough 
to really think that we could safely start getting back to some degree of normalcy. But the longer this drags on, obviously, the more everyone is desperate to get back to some degree of normalcy. So it sort of just feels like we're all just kind of accepting that we are going to continue living with large numbers of new cases every day, a large number of deaths without acknowledging it. You know, so many colleges have, you know, brought students back to campus and are, you know, having in-person classes and activities. And we're just saying, okay, we're going to have breakouts on college campuses. Um, not all of them are have adequate testing on their campus. And it's just really striking how everyone has just sort of accepted, you know, after a couple months of lockdown, you know what, we're just going to live with this. And that's what, what we're going to do. Yeah. Well, mine is the politicization of science, which obviously isn't new to the pandemic, but it's sort of the obvious, you know, result of a many years campaign. Uh, you know, I've covered lots of Democratic administrations and lots of Republican administrations and science agencies like the CDC and the NIH have always been and the FDA have always been treated with respect. I mean, there are, you know, there are arguments around the edges of, you know, you know, at FDA, it's always, do you want speed over safety or safety over speed? I mean, it's not to say there are not legitimate political and policy arguments to be made, but the idea of just, you know, the, the president getting up on a routine basis and saying that what his scientific advisors, his handpicked heads of these agencies have said is wrong. You know, what Anna was saying, we haven't had a clear public health message. I mean, we've not only not had that, we've had a clear message that said, you can't trust what anybody says, which segues us into our next topic, which is that Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar has apparently taken very literally the words of most statutes that give the Secretary of HHS final authority over most things, including things that are normally decided by the NIH, the CDC, and the FDA. Um, The New York Times reports that he's told the heads of the department's operating divisions that no rules or approvals go out that don't go through him. Now, I can't decide this is either a major power grab, traditionally, as I said, HHS agencies, particularly the science agencies, operate pretty autonomously on all but the very highest profile things, or it's an effort to prevent things like the muddled rollouts of FDA's emergency authorization for hydroxychloroquine and and the convalescent plasma. Um, I don't feel like I know enough to know which this is. What what are you guys feeling about Azar trying to sort of centralize everything in the in the secretary's office? I think that um, you know sources I've talked to are still trying to figure it out. To be honest, there is sort of a past precedent. I, I believe HHS even mentioned this in a statement where there was a case with this goes back to e-cigarettes um, and when they were brought under tobacco regulation in 2016, that that regulation was signed by a career official. And when Scott Gottlieb left the agency in 2019, I think, um, <laughs> yeah, so that his on his like second to last day, he he signed it as well so that there would be a commissioner who signed it. And because they wanted to make sure it maintained um, and wasn't able to be clawed back. And so there's this this example out there that clearly um, HHS did not love. It's not clear whether they can do anything about it with this new Azar memo, but it's something I think they want to 
prevent, particularly given the politicization politicization of science right now, and that they, you know, want to make sure there isn't a rogue commissioner who leaves on his way out and and signs something um, that they they don't like. Whether they have anything specific in mind, and and whether it's a power grab or more just of a a just in case, I don't really know at the moment. Well, there was a precedent for this in 2011 in the Obama administration over Plan B, the morning after pill that the FDA, that the advisory committee had recommended be made over the counter. And Peggy Hamburg, who was then the FDA commissioner, um, signed off on and was then overruled by HHS Secretary Sebelius um, at the direction of the president. So it's not like that, you know, the authority clearly does rest at the secretarial level. It's just that things are sort of such a muddle at HHS right now. It's hard to know sort of why Azar is doing this. Speaking of muddled things uh, at HHS, the CDC was back in the news in a not great way this week, having posted guidelines saying that COVID is indeed transmitted through aerosols, smaller particles that can travel farther, uh, and then taking down those very guidelines saying they were posted by mistake. At a Senate hearing on Wednesday, CDC Director Redfield was asked about this, had a rather convoluted explanation of how it all happened. But I feel like the bottom line is that CDC's credibility is not improving uh, with every passing day. I mean, how important is this that people actually trust what the CDC is saying as to what they should be doing? Well, I think it's hugely important for how the virus is handled in hospitals and just out in the general public. I mean, there has been, I think, some scientific consensus for a while that aerosol matters and it's not just droplets. But to have the CDC say it at one time would have been, okay, like we're we're done. This is like the way it is. Um, and now you have everything they do being looked at in this sort of conspiracy lens. And that's down to the fact that they're saying, you know, we just put this up in air. It needs to get some like technical review and then it will go back up. And whether that is true or not, it's still, it still looks bumbling and sort of, you know, on top of everything else that's gone on with this agency, um, with the president consistently calling them out that director Redfield, you know, even if it is the most simple of explanations that it was put up in air and ha- it was not political interference, it just adds to this kind of insecurity around anything that they do. Yeah, I mean, the CDC has, I mean, has normally been like the least politicized of federal science agencies. And yet in the pandemic, when you would most want to rely on them, it feels like they are among the most politicized. Um, is, is there any way to put this genie back in the bottle? I mean, how, how can CDC reestablish its credibility? It'll take a long time. Earning credibility is really difficult. Losing it is really easy. Um, And so, you know, that's what we keep seeing time and time again. You know, potentially, if the president were to change his tune a little bit, get on the same message, that might be a way to get the ball rolling. But there's also, you know, a looming election, obviously. And um, if former Vice President Biden becomes president, and I wrote about this for Business Insider um, for a story that I ran um, last night, his administration would be tasked um, with re establishing trust for the CDC. He would inherit a lot of the doubt that the public has about the CDC right now. And it's hugely important that people trust the CDC because they're putting out all kinds of guidance about how we're to socialize with friends, how we're to celebrate the upcoming holidays, how we're to go back to work. And so if people don't believe the advice from the CDC, then they won't listen to what it says. And that affects how long this pandemic continues. 
We also don't see the CDC that much, and we haven't throughout this entire time. Um, typically at a time where the CDC director or other officials would be doing regular press briefings, you know, PSA announcements, they have not been doing this. So without, you know, really seeing these officials, the public doesn't know who they are. They don't trust them right now. You know, if they're staying behind the scenes, that's not going to be a way to try to reestablish trust and security with the public. Um, but it doesn't seem at this point like the CDC is really changing, um, you know, how much they're going to be coming out and speaking to the public. Yeah, it's true. Even in sort of more minor health emergencies, you would there would be a CDC, you know, teleconference every day. I spent so many, so many days on so many CDC teleconferences. And I don't think they've had one since like February. I mean, you're right. They've they've been, in addition to all of this, they've been sort of invisible. All right, well, we are moving on. Um, last week, we had an HHS scandal wrap, and I honestly thought that that would be all we'd need for a while, but apparently that was so wrong. Uh, we're ready for another HHS scandal wrap this week. Let us start at NIH, where thanks to reporting by the Daily Beast, we now know that one of the most strident critics of Dr. Anthony Fauci at the conservative Red State website, uh, calling him a a, quote, mask Nazi, among the kinder descriptions, turned out to be none other than a press officer at NIH. In fact, a press officer at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the part of NIH Fauci directs. But the part of the story that continues to kind of flummox me is that when William Cruz's alter ego was made known to his employers, he was, they said, quote, allowed to retire. Is there honestly no such thing anymore as a firing offense? I know there's there are civil service rules, but the idea that that a press officer could be out literally trashing his boss seems to be one of those places where perhaps you could say, yes, you can leave now. <laughs> one would assume so. But from reading the article, it looked like they were still investigating whether he used NIH computers and NIH employee time to do this. So maybe that makes the difference. Um, and I don't know if a retirement can be changed when you find out the results of this investigation, because um, the story does mention a lot of the postings were done during normal work hours. So you kind of assume he was working on it um, while he was supposed to be doing things with our taxpayer money. Yeah, well, the, the, he was supposed to be promoting the science of the agency with right. our taxpayer money. <laughs> this, this one just makes my head swim. Um, back to the secretary office, Politico informs us that until this week, the de facto head of personnel at HHS was an undergraduate at my alma mater, the University of Michigan, as recently as this spring. She was one of a pair of aides sent over by the White House earlier this year, except the more senior of the pair had already been transferred to the parent agency of the Voice of America, which has been mired in its own scandal we will not discuss here, but feel free to Google it. Seriously, how had no one noticed that a 20-something had effectively been in charge of high hiring at HHS during the biggest health crisis in decades. This seems like something. I mean, there's been credit to Politico. They've this is not the first time Politico has broken this story of a recent, you know, college student or college graduate working in high level personnel offices. I don't know. I don't want to like, you know, totally theorize because I'm I, I, I don't I don't know. But I mean, is this just, you know, more of the I don't want to use the term mess, but a little bit of a mess that HHS has not had the smoothest response to this pandemic. And this is another 
very clear example. It's also another example, you know, of the White House sending over staff to important roles at HHS. Um, we have not talked about Michael Caputo. I forget when that happened and if this happened before we talked last week. We did last week at some length. Everything is blurring together lately. Um, but, you know, he had been sent over by the White House. So it's another example of, you know, the White House sending more and more officials to work at the health agency, theoretically putting in supporters of the president. And, and for those who don't remember, Michael Caputo was the spokesman who was installed by the White House at HHS, who is now on medical leave for 60 days. Um, and you can go back in your feed and listen to last week's podcast. And we talked about it really, really quite at length. All right. Well, now on to the Pentagon, which I know is not part of HHS, but the Defense Department was given a billion dollars by Congress back in March in that big uh, COVID relief bill to stockpile medical supplies like masks and medical equipment. And now the Washington Post tells us most of it was spent on parts for jet engines, body armor, and dress uniforms. Last I checked, none of those are actually a lot of help in fighting a pandemic. Apparently the DOD, when asked, said that national security is really important to health. Um, really? <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's surprising that they would do this and make that argument. Certainly, the strategic national stockpile has seems to have taken a beating kind of more than once. It's kind of where people t- tended to try to find money um, even even now. So I guess I, I felt like it wasn't too surprising, even though it doesn't really make any sense that, you know, the Defense Department has an enormous budget. Um, you would think they have the money for uniforms and things like that. You would. <laughs> but but apparently when somebody hands you a billion dollars, you spend it how you want. All right. Well, finally this week, maybe the wildest story of them all and a coda to last week's discussion about President Trump's executive order about international drug prices. The New York Times reports that one of the reasons negotiations with the drug companies fell through is that President Trump was insisting that the companies pay for a hundred dollar gift card to be sent to every senior on Medicare before the election that seniors could use to help pay for drugs. And the drug companies said no. Uh, Among other things, wouldn't that have been an illegal campaign contribution on their part? I mean, I just, of all the things I have no words for this week, I have no words for this. (laughs) I'm sure they were trying to figure out some way to not make it look like a campaign contribution, but it certainly feels like an illegal campaign contribution that isn't even really that helpful. I mean, $100 if you're a senior for your prescriptions, it's better than nothing, but it's there are many seniors who are taking four or five more pills um, every, you know, they, they're filling these prescriptions every month and $100 isn't going to take them very far. Obviously, Trump likes to put his name on checks and on things like this, even though the administration said that that was not what they were planning to do. That one's a little tough to believe. You know, there was when when Congress passed the Medicare prescription drug law in 2003, there was a temporary program and there were cards and they didn't actually work very well. I spent I spent way too much time covering those. So I'm I imagine that's where the idea came from. It was sort of a, you know, a, we'll, we'll give you something while we're getting this whole thing put together and rolling. But I would point out that happened in legislation. Congress passed that as part of the bill and funded it as part of the bill. This would have been something really highly irregular. Well, it might have also gotten a little bit of traction among Trump's circle because of how popular the checks were that went out under the stimulus. Um, You know, the thing is, with a lot of the drug 
pricing policy we've been talking about, it's all really complicated. You know, you get into PBMs, you get into Part B of Medicare, you know, the drugs that are administered at the hospital versus the ones that you get at the pharmacy and all that. So a lot of the policies regarding drug prices has been, you know, really complex and difficult to talk about. This idea is you know, very simple and probably something that that's why, you know, Trump liked it because it's a very straightforward look. This will help you pay for drugs. Here you go. Right. He said he wants to run on drug prices. He said, here's some money to bring down your drug prices. Well, yeah, I mean, right, it's, Bef- it's, yeah. It's like, oh, I was just going to say it's again that like, you know, they aren't bringing down the prices. They just want to keep kind of throwing money from some form or another um, at helping people afford them, which is, is also good, but they're not actually getting to the root of the problem. Right. But from a political messaging standpoint, it's a very simple approach. <laughs> I think, you know, if you look at it as questionable as it might be. And I read something this morning that that apparently in some of the polls, Trump is polling better than Biden on bringing down drug prices. He hasn't done very much, but he talks about it a lot. And apparently he tweets about it. Yeah. And he tweets about it. That's right. And that seems good enough. All right. Before we wrap up uh, with the news here, Mel, is there any news on the on the covid relief front? The Senate seems, you know, they can take some four months to think about doing a a bill for, you know, a whole lot of people who are hurting. But darn, they're going to fill that Supreme Court seat right away. Yeah, it does not necessarily seem at this point. There's, you know, a lot of talk on Capitol Hill, mostly on the House side at this point. Many of the freshman Democrats in frontline districts really pushing for, you know, trying to get some sort of package, a compromise package, be on the floor before they leave um, for their typical pre-election campaign break. Which is like mid-October, right? Yeah, um, I don't know the schedule off the top of my head, but I think in the next coming weeks, um, they're supposed to leave and then not be back in, in session until after Election Day. Never say never. Um, Um, Stranger things have happened. Um, Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin negotiated a spending deal, so we won't have a government shutdown. Hopefully, the Senate hasn't passed it yet, but the thought is that we'll avert a government shutdown. Never say never, but not a lot of movement on any particulars or specifics at this point. All right. Well, that is the news that we have time for this week. Now we will play my interview with KHN Sarah Jane Tribble, and then we will be back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, work-from-home neighbor and friend, Sarah Jane Tribble, who has a brand new podcast dropping next Tuesday. It's called Where It Hurts, and it's a co-production of KHN and St. Louis Public Radio. Sarah, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. So your podcast is about what happens to a small Kansas town after its local hospital closes. How did you come to get this story? So I grew up um, on a gravel road in Kansas, in southeastern Kansas, and my mom called to tell me about this hospital closing because my family still lives there. Um, Mercy is um, based in outside of St. Louis, and it had closed another hospital in the region in 2015. So this second hospital was all the talk in southeastern Kansas. And I knew how devastating it was when the first hospital closed. My brother-in-law grew up in that town. I'd partied in that town as a teenager. So I was very familiar with kind of the the fallout in that community. You know, I really wanted to understand why the hospital was closing in Fort Scott. And I wanted to understand what that really meant to southeastern Kansas and the people of Fort Scott. So what was Fort Scott like before the hospital closed? How did the residents get their health care needs met? So the hospital actually started in Fort Scott in the 1880s, in the pioneer days. And it was a big piece of the community in Fort Scott. The town is about 7,800 people, and um, Mercy was everywhere. Um, It had home health services. It had the primary care doctors. It had the ambulance at the high school football game. It ran the ambulance service. 
And it was a huge hospital on a hill, well, right by the Super Walmart, actually, in Fort Scott. <laughs> the community had helped build the new building um, and raised money for it, $2 million for that new building that was built in the early 2000s. So it's a huge part of the community. The hospital, not the Walmart. <laughs> yeah, the hospital, not the Super Walmart. Well, the Super Walmart, too, but the hospital is what we're talking about. <laughs> the president was, you know, former Chamber of Commerce president. She was in a Rotary Club, known by everybody Everybody kept telling me to talk to the town historian, um, this guy who had written some books about Fort Scott and its pioneer days and its railroad days, and they told me he knew all about Mercy. So I went to meet Fred Campbell. He grew up there, and he said Mercy was part of the town's DNA, which I found um, a really good description. And he has some very early memories. He's in his 90s, and he actually remembers when the nuns themselves were still running the hospital. And he remembers a nun putting her hand on his head to feel if he had a fever after his tonsils were taken out. So I went to ask him, you know, what did he think about the hospital closing? I couldn't believe it. How could that happen when we felt that we were as loyal to them? Why couldn't they be as loyal to us? So Mercy Hospital is far from the first, nor it will be the last rural hospital to have to close its doors. And this obviously happened before the pandemic hit. How bad is the financial situation for rural hospitals right now? Right. So southeastern Kansas is not alone. Rural hospitals have been closing across the U.S. for more than a decade, um, more than 130 in the last decade, actually. In 2020 alone, with the pandemic, 15 hospitals have closed this year. So it's one or two a month. And that pace has been quickening the last couple of years, even before the pandemic. Um, I was talking to experts like G. Bai at Johns Hopkins and George Pink at the Shep Center at the University of North Carolina And they say that this pandemic is coming at a time when we already know rural hospitals are in crises. The funding is is not working anymore. And it has been working for a while. Congress actually passed critical access hospitals back in the 1990s, late 1990s. And that gave it a boost where if you were a small hospital, 25 beds or less, you could get a different kind of payment mechanism. And even that is actually not really working anymore. Um, I did a recent story and I have another one coming out. The rural hospitals were hurting so bad, they were the first to leap at money coming out of the CARES Act with the coronavirus this spring. When a hospital closes, it's not just about health care. Hospitals are frequently the largest employers in these small towns. What was the economic impact on Fort Scott? So what's funny is, you know, when you talk to the city leaders when it first happened, they didn't want to say, you know, it was really going to hurt the community. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of community pride in these small towns. They're very strong. They have manufacturing bases. Mercy had always been one of the biggest employers in town. And um, I was talking to one expert who pointed out the hospitals in small towns tend to be where white collar jobs are found. These are some of the best paying jobs in town. At first, it was barely noticeable. Um, The severance packages from Mercy were very generous. And so uh, six months in, I started to talk to people who severance packages were running out. One woman told me she was using her credit card to buy groceries at one point. A grocery store closed down within weeks of the hospital closing. The city said it wasn't related. The cancer center left. The dialysis center left. So there was definitely a trickle-down effect in that town. And people were really scared when it first happened because they anticipated and were fearful not knowing what would happen. Rita Baker was the chief executive of Mercy Hospital when it closed. She'd been there nearly 40 years working her way up and was well known in the community. But once she announced the closing, she faced a backlash from the community like I, one wouldn't expect. And and she talked to me about that a little bit. I told one person that I don't even like going out in the community anymore because I get confronted all the time. But you know, someone confronted me at 
Walmart, you know, how, you know, how could you let this happen? And I says, well, you know, I personally didn't let it happen. So what are people doing for health care now in Fort Scott with the hospital closed? So because Rita actually grew up on a, a farm south of town and because she is the um, a former nurse, the person she is, she saw this coming a while back um, and she started making plans before the announcement was made. She contacted a federally qualified health care center that's very big in Kansas. It's the largest one in Kansas and it's based in southeastern Kansas. So she asked the leader of that group to come to town and take over the primary care clinics Mercy had, and they jumped at the chance. And so now they have a federally qualified health care center in town that's providing primary care services. Uh, Rita worked with um, a t- another hospital the next town over to try to solidify emergency care services, and you're going to learn about that in the podcast and what happened with that. But I will say that federally qualified health care centers, you know, they qualify for discounted prescription drug prices. So people were really thrilled about lower prices and drugs after they started going to that place. So there are services there. And I think that that's what makes Fort Scott a really interesting town to follow and explore what's happening there. What surprised you most about what happened after the hospital closed? So first of all, the the anger in the community that was directed at the former CEO actually surprised me quite a bit. And also the, the denial um, from the city leaders about exactly what was happening on a larger economic trend. They truly believed that another hospital could come to town and take over the hospital at first. That motivated their anger and saying, well, you should have told us sooner, we could have worked with the community. So that kind of dynamic was really interesting and surprising to watch. The other thing that surprised me was kind of learning over the course of the year with the citizens that maybe a hospital itself is not necessarily needed in these small towns, right? Like I think first glance, you're like, oh yeah, we all want a hospital in our community. It's where babies are born. That makes sense. But actually, when you look at the social and economic and health outcomes of rural America, other services are highly needed for primary care needs, things like diabetes and obesity. People suffer more from those chronic illnesses in Um, Fort Scott, certainly, that's the data. And overall in rural America, people report more kind of chronically ill days than in urban areas in the U.S. So what surprised me the most was kind of thinking about how do we actually meet the needs of these rural communities without just jumping ahead and saying, oh, we need to do hospitals and how to ask that question. So I know you've been covering this story out of Fort Scott for a couple of years now. What do you hope listeners take away from this podcast? Well, I certainly hope that they take away the idea that we need to explore what's really necessary and needed and what's um, helpful for rural communities to thrive, not just survive. But I also hope they take away an empathy and understanding of rural America itself and what is happening in rural America and uh, gain an understanding from the people whose voices they'll hear. Each episode is focused on certain people and exploring kind of the loss of services or the change of the town and healthcare community through their eyes and what happens to them throughout that year. So you'll meet people like Pat Wheeler, who's dealing with a lot of issues in the first episode, and um, she's low income, and she talks about that in a, a thoughtful way. So I expect people to walk away hopefully learning about healthcare policy in a way that's accessible through people who are uh, wonderful storytellers. That sounds great. You can listen to Where It Hurts starting September 29th at khn.org or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Jane Tribble, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Anna, why don't you go first this week? 
Sure. So mine is from The New Yorker by Jane Mayer. It's a young Kennedy in Kushner land turned whistleblower. It's this really fascinating little tidbit that Robert F. Kennedy's 26-year-old grandson somehow kind of ended up joining this like volunteer force that was going to work with Kushner to try to to get personal protective equipment like masks and things to virus hotspots. But it literally was just like a handful of these 20-somethings who were volunteering and that was the whole effort. And they were kind of stymied at every turn. And so he's he's trying to blow the whistle, even though he signed a non-disclosure agreement. So you know, it's, it's just worth a read to see kind of how this disorganized has tr- is, is disorganized and has tried to say they're doing these great things. And then you get on the inside and it's just mind blowing. Yeah. Mel. My story is from Reed Abelson at the New York Times. Many hospitals charge more than twice what Medicare pays for the same care. This story is looking at a study from the Rand Corporation that was released the end of last week, looking how private insurers pay just so much more for care provided at hospitals um, than the Medicare program does and how varied, um, you know, what different insurance plans also pay. You know, it's not universal. And this just really brought me back to, you know, several months ago before the pandemic and everything else, you know, we were really looking at healthcare costs, contemplating whether there was some way for Congress to address healthcare costs, which, you know, are pretty much the highest priority among voters when they think about healthcare. It's not the ACA. It's not Medicare for all. It's how much am I paying when I go to the doctor or what for my prescription drugs? And so this, you know, is still a huge problem. It's not something we've talked about as much for the last six months. And I should note that the hospital industry pushed back on this study. But I just thought that healthcare costs are still a huge problem. And this was a good reminder of that. Indeed. Kimberly. I picked a piece from the Wall Street Journal um, by fellow podcaster Stephanie Armour. The headline is Medicare wouldn't cover costs of administering coronavirus vaccine approved under emergency use authorization. This is something I'd actually heard a few murmurs about. So under the stimulus that Congress passed, vaccines are supposed to be covered. <laughs> the idea is that you can get a lot of people vaccinated by, you know, not charging them. However, Stephanie learned that there appears to be, uh, because of the way that the law was written, not to specifically allow it if it's approved under emergency use, that Medicare beneficiaries who, you know, have been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus may have to pay um, to receive the vaccine. And it also says later in the story that employer plans may not even fully cover and, and other private plans might not fully cover the vaccine. So that's another potential hurdle in the massive vaccine campaign that the Trump administration hopes to get underway. Gee, maybe Congress could take care of that in a COVID relief bill. Oh, that's right. All right. (laughs) Sorry. Mine is from my KHN colleague, Christina Jewett, and it's called Battle Rages Inside Hospitals Over How COVID Strikes and Kills. And it's part of our KHN Guardian Lost on the Frontline series, which I recommended some weeks back. Um, This story is a deeper look at the scientific dispute about whether COVID is primarily spread by droplets that only go roughly six feet or aerosols that go way further and the impact that that has on hospitals who need to know because it affects their decisions about masks, other forms of personal protective equipment and ventilation. Um, And how the story 
story is also about how it's affecting a uh, number of healthcare workers who are catching in, in some cases, dying of COVID. Clearly, the issue is not settled, we know from the CDC, but the story lays out the trade-offs in a really helpful and understandable way. So that is our show for this week. Next week, we will have a special episode previewing health issues in the coming election, so mark your calendars. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who this week got everybody else fancy new microphones uh, and who makes us sound okay even when we're all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. Kim? At Leonard KL. Anna? At Anna Edney. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.